Hello and welcome to the Europeans podcast where you have 50% more presenter today. There are three of us. Yay. Hi, Wojciech. Hello. Hi, Katz. Hi. So nice you've all joined us. It's a bonus episode. It's kind of a bonus episode. Yeah, I mean, it's actually a normal episode, but let's call it a bonus episode because everyone deserves a bonus episode this week. Am I right? Yeah. Yay. How is it over there in Amsterdam North? Cats, the other side of that big body of water between us. Oh, so far away. I never see you anymore since you moved to deep west. Uh, it's nice. There are lots of conkers falling outside my window. Oh, lovely. And in Warsaw? It's really cold. It's like three to five degrees Celsius in the morning. Oh. And then it's not getting much better during the day. But yeah, we're surviving. We're, you know, buying winter jackets and, you know, this kind of things. Mm. I'm still holding on, pretending it's summer over here in Amsterdam. My spring flowering bulbs starting to sprout in my garden, so it's very confusing over here in Amsterdam. And Wojciech, since we've got you here, you promised to give us some updates on the Polish election regularly. So has anything changed since you spoke to us last week? Yeah, I'm hearing my Polish neighbours shout about it a lot, actually. Can you tell us what's happening? Well, it's getting more and more interesting every day. It seems like the ruling party and the far-right party are not doing that well in the polls any longer. Mm. So it's a real nail-biter and everybody is glued to their television, to their websites with polls and we're discussing it every day. So really interesting times and I think a really, really pivotal election coming up. Ooh, nice to hear a bit more optimism in your voice, but um, yeah. but I also hear you bracing yourself uh, with expectation management. Yeah, I'm trying not to be overly excited because obviously, you know, we mm. would like to see some change. This government's been in power for eight years. It's been very controversial. And yeah, I mean, any kind of new fresh air would be very much welcome. Looking forward to hearing more. Yeah, but this week we are talking about something completely different, right? What are we talking about on the show this week? So today we're talking about trains, but not about traveling on trains, but we're talking about traveling and eating, dining on trains. We're going to talk to David Ecker, who is a real enthusiast of dining on railway cars. Love a train bistro. It's one of the interviews Katie prepared for us uh, during the summer. And again, it's as interesting and as surprising as the one about eating jellyfish. It sounds great. My husband had another epic journey this week coming back from Budapest to Amsterdam overnight that took about like eight hours longer than it was meant to. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing about some of the lovely side of train travel. I once ate a saffron risotto on that train that your husband just took, which I thought was pretty shocking. Saffron risotto? I don't believe it was real saffron, but still, it was pretty amazing. I think you should report that to our guest. I would gladly. But first, it's time for Good Week, Bad Week. Now, obviously, we are all thinking and reading a lot about Israel and Palestine this week. It's been absolutely horrifying seeing the news reports this week. And our thoughts are with all the victims and their families But we are going to be sticking with our general rule that what we do best here at the Europeans isn't responding to the biggest, fast-changing news stories of the day, but highlighting some other stories that you might have missed. And that doesn't mean that we don't think this main news story is important to follow. We just think that following the reporters who are there on the ground is probably more important at this stage than listening to what we have to say about it from our bedrooms in Amsterdam and Warsaw. 
So we're going to stick to that principle this week, even if it feels a bit strange. Um, but before we move on, does anyone have anything else they want to say? Yeah, actually, I wanted to share a pretty powerful moment I uh, experienced. I've been going to this yoga class in my neighborhood on Sunday mornings quite a while now. And the teacher is always like this force to be reckoned with. Like she's really warm and she says profound things, but she's always really funny. And she says things like, you know, it's good if you do this pose well, but you know, you're not going to change your life if you do it perfectly. So don't take yourself too seriously. And then she'll let you take a few more breaths and be like, you're not going to change the world either. <laughs> Just like, really, yeah, that that's her vibe. Um, and then this week, she looked completely different. Um, it was really clear that she was almost in tears at the start of the lesson. She's from Israel and Palestine. And she said, guys, I've been having a dilemma. Um, tonight and this morning. I don't really know how to talk about where I'm from. Um, and she said, this week's news is really intense and I can't just sit here and sing mantras and breathe. And yoga is also about being connected with what's going on in the world and the humanity of the people around you. So instead, she started the class by reading this Martin Luther King text and half in tears, she read about dreaming of a world where there is no more war and people just don't kill each other anymore. And it really, really hit. Um, I, I really don't think a single person in that room didn't cry. And I thought it was just a really beautiful and powerful thing in such a moment of violence to sit with that humanity. So, time for Good Week, Bad Week. Who has had a bad week, Wojciech? So, with the focus now squarely on the conflict in Israel, uh, I'd like to take a moment and go back to the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. So, I think it was a bad week for both Armenia and Azerbaijan because the anticipated meeting between their leaders in Granada was unfortunately cancelled uh, at the last minute by the Azerbaijani president, Ilham Aliyev. Um, could you give us a quick recap of where this conflict is right now? Yeah, I was just about to mention that this is one of the conflicts that have been going for what seems like forever. And it's very possible that people might have lost track of it along the way. So here's a very brief recap. So the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict has deep historical roots. And in the modern era, it goes back to when Karabakh was an autonomous Armenian region within Azerbaijan. And after the collapse of the USSR, the first Nagorno-Karabakh war occurred in 1992, leading to the region breaking away from Azerbaijan and declaring itself an independent state. Interestingly, no one, not even Armenia, officially recognized the state. However, for the next 30 years, the situation was such that you had this quasi-state entity within Azerbaijan, predominantly inhabited by Armenians. But in reality, it was super closely tied to Armenia and connected through the well-known Lachin Corridor, an extra-territorial road. And then there was this war in 2020, right? Yeah, that's right. That's the second Nagorno-Karabakh war. 
In the fall of that year, Armenia and Azerbaijan found themselves in a brutal conflict, which ultimately resulted in the victory of Azerbaijani forces and their regaining control over parts of Nagorno-Karabakh. The fighting finally came to a halt with a ceasefire brokered through Russia's involvement, and Russia deployed a contingent of peacekeeping forces with the mission of keeping the Lachin corridor open and safeguarding Armenians from potential aggression by Azerbaijani forces. So last year, tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan flared up again when Azerbaijani forces blocked the Lachin corridor, causing severe shortages of food, fuel, gas, medical supplies. And now we know that this was a precursor to the another military conflict that kicked off on September 19th, 2023. And this time Nagorno-Karabakh surrendered after only two days, and the quasi-state, as we knew it, will officially cease to exist on January 1st, 2024. But in reality, it's already practically non-existent, with almost 100% of the Armenian population gone, its leaders captured, and the authorities in Yerevan not appearing eager to fight for it any longer. Do you really mean every Armenian left? How how did that happen? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, Reports suggest that 100,500 people have left, And considering the Armenian government claimed that 120,000 Armenians lived in the region before the crisis, that's already like 85% of the population. But, you know, people on the ground are saying entire cities and villages are completely empty. And they think those initial 120,000 estimates might have been clearly overstated. It seems like anyone who could get out did. Mm. And they left so abruptly because they were scared. The Azerbaijani authorities gave them these really murky conditional safety guarantees. And even those didn't inspire much trust among the Armenian people. You have to remember, it's one of those conflicts where, to put it mildly, both sides have done some terrible things and there's next to no mutual trust. They've grown up with this deep-seated animosity and the subsequent wars and forced displacements of people have only made it worse. And why didn't the Armenian authorities fight back this time? Well, so this is where we get into the heart of things. So basically, Nikol Pashinyan, the current Armenian prime minister, he's in power since 2018, he's basically questioning the idea that Armenia has to rely solely on its decades-long alliance with Russia. Now, keep in mind that Armenia is a small country sandwiched between two much larger and powerful allies, Turkey and Azerbaijan, who both are openly hostile to Armenia, but very close to each other. So historically, Armenia has needed a sort of big brother to watch its back. But, you know, times are changing. Pashinyan recently pointed out that Armenia has been almost entirely dependent on Russia for its weapons and ammunition, and now with the ongoing war in Ukraine, those supply lines have been disrupted. He boldly stated, quote, This example shows that depending on just one partner for security matters is a strategic blunder, end quote. And Pashinyan has always been keen on bringing Armenia closer to the Western world, the EU and forging a stronger alliance with the US. He realized that they couldn't take on Azerbaijani aggression militarily this time and also couldn't rely on Russia anymore. So he's working on de-escalating things with his neighbors 
while reshaping Armenia's international policies. But there have been massive protests, right, against this decision. Yeah, a a big chunk of Armenian society had this deep attachment to the independence of Nagorno-Karabakh. It was like the symbol of their cultural and national identity. Mm. So now they've labeled Pashinyan as a traitor and are demanding that he steps down. They hold him responsible for the loss in the second Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2020 as well. Whether he stays in power or not, is, I think, a make-or-break moment for the entire region. Because if he were to be replaced, his successor would likely be chosen by the more nationalist, pro-Russia part of the population. And that could mean Armenia going back to being heavily reliant on Russia. What this would mean for them in the long run is kind of up in the air, especially with Russia having its own share of problems and not providing as much support this time around. Wojciech, you gave this bad week because of this meeting that didn't happen. So why didn't it happen? You see, Pashinyan appears to have come to terms with the fact that Nagorno-Karabakh is now under Azerbaijani control. He was actually very eager to meet with Azerbaijani President Aliyev, hoping for what he called a turning point document to be signed. But unfortunately, Aliyev decided to decline the summit, citing uh, an anti-Azerbaijani atmosphere. What he meant by that was probably the involvement of France as one of the mediators, which he believed, quite rightfully, I would say, had not been neutral during the conflict. Um, This is because during a recent visit to Armenia, French foreign minister... Uh, Catherine Colonna made a somewhat vague offer of military support to Armenia, and this didn't sit well with Azerbaijani officials. Also, it's no secret that France has a very strange relationship with Turkey, and Turkey was not invited to be part of the mediation process, so in the end, the summit took place without Azerbaijani officials. The silver lining I can offer you is that Ursula von der Leyen has pledged to make every possible effort to arrange a meeting between the EU, Armenia and Azerbaijan before the end of October under conditions that are acceptable to all parties involved. So the hopes now are that this trilateral meeting in Brussels would make for a better negotiating space than this maybe slightly overcrowded summit in Granada. Trilateral. Look, are you with your Euro speak, Wojciech? Yeah, I'm making progress. It's one of my favorite EU words. <laughs> Thank you for explaining this to us. I actually have to admit that I'm going very Brussels nerdy with my uh, good week this week. So I shouldn't be teasing you about using words like trilateral. Hmm, interesting. So who has had a good week, Dominic? Well, as I said, uh, this good week is pretty nerdy. So. Um, be warned, because for the first time in my life this week, I found myself watching a live stream of a confirmation hearing at the European Parliament whilst cooking myself dinner. Ooh, congratulations on your maiden voyage. Thank you. Honestly, I don't know how I've become that person. And um, <laughs> I think maybe it's finally happening. And I'm like, 
as interested in European politics as I used to be in American politics. This <laughs> podcast is doing something the to me. The podcast has broken you. Yes. <laughs> I did honestly feel a bit like I was crossing the Rubicon into ultimate Brussels nerdery by watching this live stream. So I will try my best to explain why I was watching this hearing and why I'm giving good week to Europe's newest commissioner, Vopke Hoekstra, without <gasps> alienating anyone who isn't as much of an EU nerd as I I now apparently am. So please stop me, Katz or Wojciech, if I get too stuck in the weeds. <laughs> I will. I will. I'm also very upset that he's getting Good Week. <laughs> As you know, Katz, Good Week is not a quality judgment. It's just who we think has had a good week, right? Mm, it's too soon. <laughs> so it's been a good week for Vopka Huxra and also for Slovakian Commissioner Maros Ševčovič after they were both approved by the European Parliament and its Environment Committee to lead the European Commission's climate efforts together. One thing I don't understand is why they were chosen now. Shouldn't they be chosen like after the election? Yes, which is happening next year. You're absolutely right, Wojciech. You're also an EU nerd. Um, the 27 EU commissioners, one for each country, are usually chosen after the European parliamentary elections. And the reason why the commissioners were being approved now is because the Dutch commissioner, who was spearheading the EU's massive climate legislation, the European Green Deal, a guy called Franz, Franz Timmermans, Timmermans. He decided to step down from his EU role uh -huh. so that he could head back to the Netherlands and lead the newly merged Labour and Green Party in the run-up to the Dutch general election, which is in November. Are you still with me? <laughs> yeah, but I want to say he was a bit of your like EU Brussels bubble sweetheart, right? I don't know if sweetheart is too big of a word, but he does feel more famous than most commissioners. That's true. But whilst we're here sitting talking about commissioners, I feel like I should like probably very briefly recap what the commission is. In case you haven't listened to our explainer episode about what the commission is, titled President of the European What Now? The commission is basically a key part of the EU's executive branch. It kind of functions a bit like the government of the EU. And they have a president called Ursula von der Leyen, plus eight vice presidents. And the commissioners are some of the most powerful people in the EU, but they are not elected directly. They are nominated by national governments and then must be approved by the elected parliament. It's a system which is sometimes criticized for being rather opaque and involving lots of negotiation behind the scenes that citizens don't have a direct say on or even don't get to hear what those negotiations are sometimes. So Franz Timmermans, the Dutch commissioner, he stepped down and he needs replacing and it's up to the Dutch government to put forward a replacement commissioner for the Netherlands and in an immediately controversial move, they decide to put forward a Dutch politician from a very different political background to Timmermans. They put forward a Christian Democrat who had led the finance ministry and was up until recently Minister for Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands, a man called Vopke Hoekstra. I have also been following this very closely. And if I understand correctly, he's not directly replacing Franz Timmermans, right? 
No, indeed. So Timmermans was one of these vice presidents of the EU Commission, and Vopka is not going to be taking that role, nor is he leading the Green Deal. That's going to the Slovakian commissioner, who we'll come to in a minute. But Huxera is being given the brief of Commissioner for Climate Action. Mm. And one of the reasons why this confirmation hearing has become a bigger news story than most confirmation hearings and why I was watching is because Huxera's career up until now doesn't exactly paint him as a politician who is particularly concerned or interested in climate change. This becomes very clear when you look at his CV. Hoekstra previously worked for Shell. Hmm. It does feel like an incredible choice in 2023 to have an ex-Shell employee. Right. He then worked for McKinsey for a decade and later went into politics where he, as Minister of Finance, arranged the huge multi-billion euro bailout of the Dutch-French airline Air France KLM. The Dutch political comedian Arjen Lubach joked that you can actually smell the petrol coming out of Hoekstra's CV. Gross. But perhaps the most alarming thing for green-minded people with this appointment was the fact that his party, the Christian Democrats, is affiliated with the European People's Party group in Europe. And this is this hugely powerful political grouping who have recently been trying to block certain aspects of the landmark European climate legislation and have been successful in some cases. For example, in their watering down of the huge biodiversity bill only a few months ago. So his nomination, when it was announced some months ago, raised more than a few eyebrows. (laughs) I do not have a very moving face, but my eyebrows have been permanently raised. (laughs) Yes, mine have been pretty raised too, to be honest. But as I said earlier, he was not put forward as the commissioner in charge of the Green Deal. That portfolio was given to Maros Shevchovic from the same European Social Democratic Party grouping as Franz Timmermans. So that maybe makes a bit more sense. Shevchovic was also having to prove himself in front of the European Parliament's Environment Committee this week, but I will come to him in a bit. Well, so how did this ex-Shell employee do in front of this committee? Well, he got a pretty bumpy ride. He got some quite critical questions from politicians on the green and the left side of things. But honestly, it was kind of weird because Hoekstra seemed to have a complete political personality transplant and presented himself as a total champion of green issues. It was almost like he joined Extinction Rebellion. He talked about wanting to introduce an international kerosene tax, a maritime levy, a fossil fuels tax. He talked of the need for Europeans to change their diets for the climate. And I don't know about you, Katz, but I cannot imagine a world in which he would have put his political weight behind these issues whilst working in Dutch national politics. It's so far out of his wheelhouse. It is such a transformation. Like, that's the thing that surprised me. It's not, you know, that he was like, that he once worked in Shell. But like, there didn't seem to be any run up. It was just like two months ago, he was not interested in the climate. And now all of a sudden, he was. Right. Yeah. And he got, he did get some accusations of opportunism, just like playing to the people that he knew he needed to get the votes. But he did make some significant announcements. He, for example, said he wanted the EU to commit to emissions cuts of 90% by 2040, which 
up until now has not been something that the EU has been explicitly aiming for, but is something that has been really pushed for by climate scientists and green politicians. So that announcement was seen as a big win for the green left. Whoa, so he's like really green now, which is kind of surprising. So did the MEPs buy it? I don't know if everyone bought it. I mean, as I said, there were people who commented on the fact that he'd had this like radical switch of opinions. But he did eventually get the crucial votes from the Environment Committee, although they did make him sweat for it. The committee postponed their final decision by a day and even made him answer some extra questions. So if people weren't entirely convinced, uh, why did they vote him through? Well, it's that typical thing with the EU where everything ends up being a compromise. And because his appointment was kind of unofficially coupled with giving the Slovakian commissioner Shevchovic the Green Deal brief, their confirmations ended up being a bit of a package deal together. If the left had voted down Hoekstra, the right probably would have voted down Shevchovic, oh. and then we would have been back at square one. Uh-huh. Also, many on the green left were actually genuinely pleased that someone running for this position was making these commitments to strengthen the EU's green policies, even if it was coming from someone very unexpected and was mainly in an attempt to woo the Greens for the votes. Or maybe he's had a genuine change of opinion. Maybe since he's been offered this brief, he looked into the science and was like, oh, maybe we do actually need to do something about this. <laughs> um, I do genuinely wonder if like, more will be accomplished if you have a climate ally in the European People's Party who feels pressure to uh, take the climate more seriously than if you just only have these opinions coming from you know, the green left. Yeah. Well, exactly. We need saving the climate not to be a party political thing that divides the left and the right. Otherwise, nothing's ever going to happen, right? We shall see. And of course, there's a big question of whether Hoekstra and Shevchovic will be able to come through on any of these policy ideas that they talked about in their committee hearings. But the public pronouncements themselves of these greater climate ambitions already shifts the argument a bit in the European sphere. How did his own party respond? Weren't they a bit shocked? Well, that's a really good question. The Christian Democrats of Hoekstra's own political party were really not happy. One spoke to the Dutch broadcaster NOS anonymously saying, he came there with many more green commitments than expected. We were trapped. We couldn't vote against our own candidate. The Social Democrats and the Greens played the game well, better than us. Ooh, spicy. So I think your eyebrows can like actually slowly go down, Cats. <laughs> like I said, my face doesn't move much. <laughs> I promised I would also tell you a bit about the Slovakian commissioner, Shevchovic, who is already a vice president of the commission. So it would have been a bit strange if he was rejected in his new position. He also said he wanted to set the goal of a 90% reduction in emissions by 2040. So he and Hoekstra are on the same page and on most issues they discuss in the hearings. But there were reports that some MEPs were not so impressed with his hearing and there was quite some concern from some MEPs about his connection to Robert Fico, the populist Slovakian politician who just won the Slovakian elections. Fico is seen as an ally of Orban, he's friendly with Russia and he actually promised not to send any more military aid to Ukraine during his election. But Shevchovic pushed back against these concerns and said that, of course, he supports military aid to Ukraine. 
So they both got voted through, and I guess that's all I really have to say about these hearings for now. Uh, now we can just sit back and see how these two men do. Now they've been given two of the most important jobs in Europe, albeit only temporarily until the next European parliamentary elections. The first challenge for Hoekstra will be preparing for the yearly UN climate conference, COP28, which is coming up in Dubai at the end of November. We'll be watching closely. What a place to hold COP. <laughs> right. Patreon, it's that time of the week where we thank the wonderful people who are keeping this podcast going. We have two new supporters on Patreon this week, Filippo Viviani and Catherine Spinks. Thank you both so much. You can head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast if you've got a little bit of spare cash that you could throw our way each month. It can be as little as two euros. It makes a big difference. The more people that do it, the more likely we are to survive. Our guest today has ventured into a unique territory that most of us wouldn't even think of. Back in 2018, uh, he kicked off a Twitter account dedicated to sharing pictures and stories from railway dining cars. Surprisingly, it turned out that he wasn't the only European with a taste for tracks and snacks, and his niche account has since grew to more than 10,000 followers. In just a moment, you'll hear Katie Lee dive into a conversation with David about which rail companies offer the best menus and what the future holds for dining experiences on train journeys. We gave David Ecker a call in Vienna. Restaurant cars on trains. If you don't mind me saying so, it does seem like quite a niche interest. How did you get so fascinated by them in the first place? It was in May 2018 when I uh, was traveling to uh, Strasbourg. I was working at the Council of Europe there. And this uh, dining car by Deutsche Bahn attracted me really a lot. It was an unrefurbished dining car from the early 1990s with this pink interior design, golden railing. And I thought, okay, I'm sure people know this, but I think more people have to know about this. And so I started this uh, Twitter account and I found out that there is some kind of a community, a growing community. It was a bit earlier than Greta Thunberg was there, but it was already in the spirit and people were more and more traveling by train. And, and I like traveling by train, of course, this is also a reason. And uh, I like sitting in the dining car and uh, watching um, the scenery outside the landscape and having a meal. Or It has something attractive in terms of slow traveling, maybe also time traveling, I don't know. And how many different restaurant carriages have you eaten in? Do you think? I mean, do you know? <laughs> About, I don't know, 100, something like that. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. And there is a huge variety of dining cars out there in Europe. Well, let's talk about them. I mean, I live in France and 
I don't think I've ever eaten anything more ambitious in a French train restaurant carriage than a like a sad sandwich with a can of Orangina. <laughs> and then I look at all of these pictures on your Flickr account and your Twitter page from sort of Austria eastwards. And there's all of these pictures of these like beautiful hot three course meals with mm. schnitzel and pasta and these like ambitious desserts. <laughs> I mean, does Europe get better at train eating the further east you go? You can say so, but this is, uh, of course, is related to uh, how work is uh, paid, I would say. There is a cook in the dining car and there are two waiters. Mm. If you go to France, there is one person in the bar carriage preparing hot meal. If there is one in the microwave, and that, that's it. But uh, I think the meals in France and on train are not that bad. They are just a bit awful looking, I would say, not very much emphasis is put on uh, presentation. But like, that's weird, no? I mean, France has a world-class culinary reputation and it has good trains. Like, why is my country so crap at food on trains? Yeah, but in my opinion, it fits really well to this uh, high-speed train image. Everything has to be fast. Not only the train journey is on 320 uh, kilometers per hour, but also the, the meal is fast. More and more people have to fit in in one train set. So there's not much room for dishes or seating areas, etc. Mm. Everything is optimized to a certain um, lifestyle. And this is high speed in France. But um, in great contrast to this pitiful French offering, I mean, some European rail services are really taking train dining to the next level, right? Like they're starting to offer seasonal menus and like craft brew beer designed specifically for that journey. Mm. Which routes do you think deserve a particular shout out for how great the food is? I think if you want to experience uh, great dining on rails, you have to go to the Czech Republic with uh, JD Railways. Uh, they are doing an amazing job. As you mentioned, they have their own craft beer. They have warm dishes, especially the, the route between Prague and Berlin um, is very attractive, not only because of the scenery outside, but also because of the beautiful dining cars they have there with nice table lamps, white uh, tablecloth, red seats. It's really beautiful. But there are other countries as well. I want to highlight as well uh, Finland. You can have a really nice dining experience there. And also, of course, Switzerland. They have a huge variety of dining cars, especially the, the dining car of Rätische Bahn, in the east of the country, where St. Moritz is and all these uh, very well-known alpine ski resorts. There is this uh, old Gourmino dining car basically a dining car from the 1930s in a regular service. Cool. And you have to dis distinguish between the dining cars in a regular service and those on a charter train or luxury uh, touristy trains. They are all over the world, also in Africa or in South America, and they are offering um, fine dining, but you pay for it, of course. It's like 10,000 euros per trip or something like that. It's like a cruise ship. Uh, it's just a cruise train. But that's not the thing I'm so interested in. I think uh, it's for the ordinary people, I would say. Is there a restaurant carriage that you've tried where the food is mediocre, but the views are absolutely incredible, so you can forgive them for it? Uh, yeah, if you go to Italy, for example, in their high-speed trains, you'll often travel alongside the coast. 
especially on the Adriatic coast in the east side, this kilometers of beautiful seaside view, but the, the bar carriage just offers, yeah, small snacks and uh, a pretty well done espresso, of course, but um, that's it. So they're standing in the bar carriage looking outside uh, to the sea, to the Adriatic Sea. I can forgive not having a full-on three-course meal, I guess. And is there a picture of someone else's journey from a restaurant car beyond Europe, somewhere else in the world, that they've sent to your dining car account and you have just looked at it and thought, oh, I have to try that one? Ah, uh, yeah, of course. Recently, uh, someone posted pictures from uh, some dining experiences in um, Central Asia, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And I thought, okay, I have to try that uh, once. It looks really exciting, especially also the landscape passing by these huge mountains and also the desert. And yeah, I have to do this. That does sound pretty amazing. Um, coming back to Europe... Cross-border train travel can be quite complicated here because our national train networks aren't that well integrated and you sometimes need to buy this like horrible combination of different tickets for different legs of the trip. Mm. As someone that travels a lot on European trains, is that something that seems to be getting better or not so much? Uh, I think we are kind of stuck in the middle. I get, I heard so that there is progress uh, behind doors in the European Union, uh, that they're working hard on finding solutions. But it's really a difficult task as the rail networks are organized nationally with all these different forms of ticket prices and something like that. This is also something what I wanted to highlight with my uh, social media project uh, that a sustainable form of traveling is possible and that there are also advantages and nice things to it next to some things that have, as you mentioned, has to be done better. But it's one thing. There are other things as well because um, the capacities on how to bring all these people that will be attracted from an attractive ticketing system has to also fit in, a, in, in trains. So countries have to buy or invest in the rolling stock, has to invest in infrastructure to put more and more people on trains instead of uh, planes. And as you say, there does seem to be a trend towards people wanting to take long distance trains more, partly for climate reasons. And as part of that, night trains are having a bit of a resurgence across Europe right now. Are you hopeful that that's going to lead to a bright new era of train dining across Europe? I think the, the dining on trains has not that bright future, I would say. Oh. I think efficiency is what is uh, needed on, on trains. You see more and more people want to go by train and there has to be the space for those people and not so much for dining. I don't think that it will die completely, but efficiency will be the, the more important term than, uh, let's say, uh, comfort. That's kind of sad. Yeah, it's sad, but um, it makes sense to me. You can already see how dining and trains will be in 25 years. If you have a look at the orderings of the rolling stock, you see what the railway companies, how they design it. For example, in the Czech Republic, you see already that this era of dining on trains, as it is right now, will come to an end or will fade out a little bit. So like me, everyone's just going to have a sad sandwich and a sad can of Orangina? 
Yeah, I think it will be better than that. I think the Czechs will always have their freshly tapped beer on on trains. I'm pretty (laughs) sure that won't uh, vanish. But um, yeah, that's the direction as well, I think, in general. Having a quick beer and a quick snack instead of a three-course meal. If you'd like to acquaint yourself better with dining on railway cars, head forward to at underscore dining car on Twitter, now turned X. It's an account that would make you both hungry and willing to travel. Welcome everyone to Inspiration Station, our newly renamed segment of cultural recommendations across Europe. Cats, what have you been enjoying this week? Yeah, uh, my Inspiration Station is May Martin's stand-up show on Netflix called Sap. Now, I must confess that May is Canadian, but has an English father and lives in England, so I am sneaking it in. I thought it was absolutely hilarious and gave a lot of comic relief that I needed. And there was a part that was particularly sharp on the front of mindfulness and self-care. And it changed the way that I think about how I think forever. (laughs) Oh, I'll watch it. I love Mae Martin. I loved their series Feel Good. And Wojciech, what have you been enjoying this week? So uh, I'm definitely not a big fan of autumn as such so uh, as this season rolls in I'm kind of finding ways to make my days a bit brighter maybe and one of the ways is through the music of Laura Mvula Uh, have you ever heard of her? Mm, I love Laura Mvula so for those who have not heard of her she's a UK based singer and I've accidentally closely followed her since the beginning of her career today I want to recommend the title track from her latest album Pink Noise it's a highly energetic music, reminiscent of Prince a lot, but with a very contemporary twist. Like sometimes when I listen to this, it feels like this is the music Prince would be creating if he was still with us. Our overlap in musical taste is once again showing up, Wojciech. Yeah, yeah. We should go to like a music <laughs> festival together one day. We should. Deal. Cute. Time for a happy ending, which Katz has very kindly offered to take over from me this week because I've been so busy in a dark theatre for 12 hours every day. Katz, cheer us up. I am giving happy ending to the Bithibus, which is in my one of my hometowns, Barcelona. Sorry, there's been a bit of a bias of Barcelona in the past couple of weeks. What is the Bithibus? Bithibus means bicycle bus. And it's actually a big pack of bicycles, so there's no real bus. And it's this scheme that was started in the 90s, but has gained popularity over the past three years all around the area after a group started one in the nearby city of Vic. And the idea is to make it possible for kids to cycle to school. It's since spread and there are 15 bicycle bus lines in Barcelona. And it's especially popular in neighborhoods that are particularly kid unfriendly. So if you think about Barcelona, these like iconic grid streets, right? 
And it's innovative architecture, but it's also really car heavy. And a lot of people say it's not easy for kids to get around. I can attest as someone who moved here when I was eight from a village in England with 20 houses, it can be pretty overwhelming when you're like, just learning to cross the road. And there really is no way for kids to cycle safely through the city on their own. So instead, a group of adults decided the only way it would be safe is if they cycle with one big pack and they take up like the entire road. I love it. So it also feels a bit like this sort of child protest of like, make space for us. Mm. And the organizers decided it was better to annoy the cars than have the kids sticking to the bike lanes and annoy the other cyclists. So they just cycle in the middle of the road. And they've accomplished some rather symbolical moves. One of the big problems is a lack of infrastructure. So the kids don't have anywhere to put the bikes when they get to the school. But they've managed to convince a Volkswagen workshop and also a former prison to let the kids put their bikes there. So there are all these pictures of like many, many children streaming into this prison. Um, there are a bunch of different lines and stops, but the BC bus starts every Friday at 8.30 and it crosses through the city across these like massive six lane avenues. And then there's adults at the front and the back and at the side acting as protectors. According to the organizers, the BC Boost now transports over a thousand people a week. And there are all these really cute little interviews with kids talking about how it's the best day of their week and they love getting to choose the boombox music. And the teachers say that the kids arrive at school way more energized. Um, I love the idea of this like grassroots movement setting a whole new web of public transport. And it's a model that's being replicated in many different neighborhoods and maybe also other cities. So keep your eyes peeled for a huge blob of children cycling through a metropole near you. It sounds so lovely. What a great initiative. It's so nice having happy ending done at me instead of having to bring the happy to other people. <laughs> we should do this more often. Yay! Thank you, everyone, for listening this week. This show was produced by Wojciech Oleksiak and Katie Lee, who produced the interview. Thank you, Katz, for joining us today as well. It was really nice to have you here. I like this with three We'll be back next week. And actually, Katie will be back next week, taking a break from her maternity leave for the beginning of a very special set of episodes about Oatly, the oat milk company. So do not miss that. Until then, you can find us on social media, Instagram at Europeans Podcast, Twitter slash X at Europeans Pod or email us hello at europeanspodcast.com. I've also promised Patreon supporters I'm going to set up a Blue Sky account this week. Mm. So maybe next week we'll have a new handle to announce to you. Let's see if I get there. How exciting. Have a good week, everyone. Ciao. Louis. Nach vandies. <laughs>